clay vessels. Always remember when in Greenville, in the Sunday school, when Dr. Barrett was teaching the class, he was expounding that particular passage, and he said, literally, it simply means an old clay pot. So that's all he's just an old clay pot. I don't know if he was talking about the shape or whatever, but anyway, that was the introduction he gave me. I don't know why I got into it for, he could have said, look at me, I'm just speaking of himself, I'm just an old clay pot. But anyway, that's what we are, and it's good to be a clay pot in the Lord's hands. Trust he'll indeed bless us today. Now, my wife's going to cringe for a while. Your minister said she doesn't preach. That's only partly true, as every married man knows. <laughs> I saw that dig there. I saw that dig. Uh, it means she doesn't come and preach to you, but uh, she can preach to me. And I've often told her she's got the gift of application and uh, knows how to do that. Anyway, she'll cringe when I say, that I'm not really going to preach a sermon or what you normally may expect. This would be more along the lines of what in Greenville I would have called a prayer talk. I think, and this is a digression, I think that our churches, and I mean the free churches, I mean reformed churches, I mean evangelical churches, broadly, have killed the prayer meeting. You have, in most churches, Bible study and prayer. And I think that is, first of all, a foolish combination, and it is self-destructive. Now, I'm all for Bible study, and I think a night for Bible study in a church is a great thing to have. But you see, where the preacher comes along and he has a Bible study, it may be a theory, uh, a series of themes, uh, may all be very true, may be very edifying, but it is really nothing to lead people to prayer. In every other service of the church, the praying or the preaching is the climax of the service, but that's not so in the prayer meeting. Praying is the climax of the service. And so therefore, mostly throughout my ministry, when I would stand up at the beginning of the prayer meeting, uh, I didn't know what I was going to say. I very often, when I stood up, didn't know what I was going to read. During the hymn, I'd be praying the Lord would give us more direction. Other times, I'd already had that direction and knew what to read. But the whole idea was that this would be an informal uh, devotional look at God's word with the specific intention of guiding God's people to pray. And the Lord blessed that. And I think Mr. Wagner would bear witness that we had a great prayer meeting in that church in Greenville. And that was the heartbeat of the church in its years of growth and blessing. And that was true in all our churches in Northern Ireland. That was the heartbeat. When revival blessing came to us, it was a revival, first of all, in answer to prayer, but it was also a reviving 
that continue to revive us in prayer. So this is something like a prayer talk. Now, it's not a prayer talk in that it's to lead us to a prayer meeting today, though if the Lord did that, I would have no complaints whatsoever. But I realize that I'm coming to you at a difficult time for you, a difficult time for Mr. and Mrs. Wagner. This is a very hard time of transition for them. And that means also for this congregation. Raises many questions for you. And I have no doubt that many of you have been asking these questions in your own mind. What will be the future for us? Is there a future for us? Is there somebody else ever to stand in this pulpit or take the place of Mr. Wagner? Uh, Can that happen? When will it happen? And... Should I be here or should I be somewhere else? All those questions are going to come up in your mind, and I have to recognize that. And so therefore, as I prayed about this, uh, I realized that this calls for something somewhat different. I can't give you the answers to all those things. Uh, I'm just a visitor. But the Lord can give you answers, and it's been my prayer that the Lord will use our time today to first of all, first of all, to bring uh, a sense of comfort, a sense of blessing, a knowledge of God's guidance, and perhaps also to give us a little more backbone. I don't mean that that's been lacking, but simply the ability to say, I'm willing to prove God, and we can look together despite what may appear very daunting circumstances, to see the Lord do what we can hardly envisage. And so with all that in mind, my heart turned to one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the book of the Psalms, Psalm 121. Psalm 121. It's a very brief psalm. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Amen. The Lord will add the blessing of God to the reading of his word. You'll notice right at the beginning of the psalm that it's a song of degrees. There are 15 songs of degrees, starting at Psalm 120 and going through Psalm 134. Now, scholars have long debated what this means. There are certain views that have more or less taken root 
and uh, those who hold them think that they're the only possible view. I think you may bring them down to two. There is the very well-known idea that these were the songs that were sung uh, by the pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem, remembering that it doesn't matter what direction you come to Jerusalem from, you're always going up a hill because it's surrounded by these hills. And so the idea is that the pilgrims would sing these songs, these psalms. And there's a lot of truth in that. The word degrees is a word that simply means steps. It's actually one of a family of words that has the common idea of rising or ascending. For instance, in the burnt offering, the ascending offering, uh, the, the word there is uh, of this family of words that uh, you have here translated degrees. It's a word that's used of the stairs from Mount Zion. It could be translated steps. And so you can see where this idea comes from. They sang this as they made their way, arising up the hills toward the holy place in Jerusalem. However, there is another way of looking at this, and I personally think that this gets much closer to the real truth of the matter. There are only two areas of Scripture in which the degrees are spoken of. It says the song of degrees, and everyone except one of these songs of degrees, the Hebrew is song of the degrees, as if these were identifiable and well-known degrees. Now, if you read your whole Bible, you will find that there's only one set of degrees known in Scripture, and they, of course, bring us to the history of Hezekiah, when after the Lord had done great things for him in destroying this, the Assyrian enemy, Hezekiah fell ill. His illness was naturally to be fatal, and that's the message he got. Now, he was only 39 years of age. He had no progeny, and that was a very serious thing for the king of Israel. Because of his seed, there was to be a line that would lead all the way to Christ. And he had no progeny. And so he turned his face to the wall, and he began to pray. And God heard his prayer and said he would heal him. Well, what will be the sign? And so the prophet Isaiah said to him, Well, would you like the sun to go down ten further degrees on the sundial of Ahaz? Or would you like it to go back ten degrees? Hezekiah said, Well, the sun's going to go down ten degrees anyway, given enough time, so let's see if it goes back. And, of course, that was the miracle that was done, the ten degrees. And that was the sign that the Lord would add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Now, I'm not going to go into the details that you'll find uh, in Second Kings chapter 20 and Isaiah chapter 38. 
But if you look at those, you'll find something that's fascinating. Number one, you will discover that Hezekiah was a writer. Second, you will find he was a writer of psalms that were included in the worship of the Lord. In other words, they have their place in the Psalter. Now, put it together, we have 15 songs of the degrees. The 15, exactly the number of years added to Hezekiah's life. There were 10 degrees. When you look at the 15 psalms, 10 of them have no name of an author. The other five, four are David's and one is Solomon's. I believe that those other ten are Hezekiah's. So you'll see that there is good reason for seeing the songs of degrees in the context of that great experience of the king of Judah. Now, keep that in mind. I should say, however, there's no reason why these two views are, should be mutually exclusive. There's no reason why the, uh, we can't see the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem singing the very songs that Hezekiah penned. No reason at all. I, I have to say that when I look at this, uh, I think this is much more scriptural than some of the things that so many scholars have written. And it helps us when we come to Psalm 121 to see that it takes on a much more personal tone. When you read the commentators in this psalm, they are all over the show. Uh, and some of them will imagine it was written under this historical setting and the other historical setting. And the truth is, they're making the whole story up out of their own imagination. And there is no evidence whatsoever for most of the theories that they uh, have put. And they're just a plethora of contradictory ideas that men have given regarding the circumstances of the writing of the psalm. But if we see it as the heart cry of Hezekiah in Psalm 120, he says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord. You read that psalm in the light of Hezekiah's distress when as a 39-year-old he turned his face to the wall because death was facing him and he was in the depths of distress. Then you read this psalm 121. And so as death is facing him, what does he do? He says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. Men and women, if you get nothing else of what I say this morning, get this. And I say it to you all, because this is a difficult time. Perhaps not a time like Hezekiah's, where you have a death sentence facing you. Although, mind you, you don't know that either. For every one of us is just a heartbeat away from it. But though your circumstances may be different, as a, a congregation of God's people, you are facing a situation that brings you face to face with what you cannot deal with. And you're looking at the future wondering, as he was wondering, is there no answer? Is this our end? I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. It is always good in the midst of the most trying circumstances of life, to say, I will lift up my eyes 
So long as our eyes are downward to earth, so long as our eyes are inward to self, so long as we are consumed by the things that perplex us and defeat us, we will be perplexed and we will be defeated. And our distress will not be relieved. But when we lift up our eyes, then it is an entirely different story. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. It's very interesting when you look at that because it ties in with some other statements of Scripture. And it gives me, some would say an excuse, maybe it is an excuse, to deal with this psalm in a way that I would say is purely topical. Well, almost purely topical. Now, topical preaching, as Mr. Wagner will well remember from our days in class, and he has taught homiletics much more ably than ever I could, but he has uh, made the same point. Topical preaching has to be dealt with very, very, very carefully because you can end up preaching just what you want, not what the Bible is actually saying. I want us to think of these hills in a topical fashion. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. But I should say, with all that, look at the outline of the psalm. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? Actually, in the words of one great Old Testament scholar, that's an impossible translation. It's the same translation as the great Martin Luther. But there is a little particle of speech in there that tells you at least the second half of the verse 1 is a question. So let's look at this. We start in verse 1 with asking a question. I lift up my eyes to the hills, the holy place of God, the temple, the house of God. Every whit of it speaks of our Lord and our Savior and all that there is in Christ. I will lift up my eyes. And then the question comes, whence cometh my help? Where am I going to get an answer? Where am I going to receive help? How am I going to receive help? That's the question that was in Hezekiah's mind. And that's the question in our mind. I want you to see immediately there is an answer. Verse 2. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Now, you will notice when you go into the third verse, there's a, a very subtle but a very definite change. In verses 1 and 2, it's all I and my. Now in verse 3, he says, He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. Now notice it's not Hezekiah now merely speaking of himself. 
But having experienced this from the Lord, having himself come to this assurance of grace and this blessing, he's able to communicate that assurance. And now he's preaching a sermon to his whole people. He's preaching a sermon to all of God's people down through the ages. And he's saying, have a look at what God hath wrought for me. See what I have been through, what I proved. And now let me tell you, here is the assurance that God's people can have in every circumstance of life, in every era of history, no matter who they are, where they are, or what they're facing, he will not suffer thy foot to be moved. And so on down through the psalm until he will preserve thy going out, thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. That is the wonderful assurance that this psalm brings to us. Now, with that in mind, we are going to look at the psalm, as I've said, topically. If you look at Psalm 125, you will see what it says there. Verse 2. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth and even forever. In other words, in Psalm 125, what we are told by Hezekiah again is that the hills and the mountains around Jerusalem are not just geographical features, but they are sermons. They're illustrations. And they speak of our God. And as those mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. Now keep that in mind, because Hezekiah himself is the one who, under inspiration speaks of the mountains in a spiritualized or, if I may say, a topical fashion. They speak of the presence and the perfections of the Lord. Now that's how I'm going to use them. So I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills that speak of the Lord and all his perfections. How are we to look to the Lord today? In the midst of the things that perplex us and worry us and the question marks that are raised over us, how are we to look at the Lord? Well, I will lift up mine eyes first and foremost to the hills, to the mountain tops of God's eternal purpose. Let us remember this in the midst of all the changeable circumstances of time. We serve the one who says, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We come to the one who says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end, or an end, and an expectation, or as many like to put it, an end and a reward. I like the idea of the expectation. I am the Lord. I know what I'm doing. You may not be able to trace me, but trust me. I know what I am doing. 
My purpose, as we're told very clearly, my, his purpose shall stand. He says, I will do all my will. That's the absolute of God's purpose. And we trust in that. Lift our eyes to the purpose of God. This is the basis of the security that any Christian feels regarding the future of his own life and soul. We can't get anything more rock solid than this. Isn't this what the latter half, indeed the whole of Romans chapter 8 is about? It starts off, there's no condemnation that are in, to them that are in Christ Jesus. But how do we know that? How can we be sure that we will never, as John Wesley's followers have told the world, we will never yet be dragged back under condemnation? How do we know that? Well, we come down to this. And he says, we know that all things are working together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now here is God's purpose. He defines it for us. He describes it for us. What is God's purpose? Because whom? Not what. God knows all the what's. But the argument here is about people. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me stop for a minute. There are some people who think they know better than God and they so hate the whole idea of a sovereign God's electing grace and sovereign predestinating purpose that they will mangle scripture and they come up with all sorts of philosophical garbage in order to overturn the plain statements of scripture. There are other people and they're so reformed that they're deformed and they're so big on the predestination that they forget what God has said. God never predestinated a man to be a liar, a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, or a so-called carnal Christian. Nor did he ever predestinate anybody to be merely an egghead Calvinist with all the little dogmas and doctrines up between his ears, but nothing to show for it in his life. He, whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And that tells me this is not merely the general call of the gospel, but this is the effectual call of the Spirit in saving grace. Because everyone whom he calls, he justifies. And whom he justified, we would put in there sanctified, wouldn't we? But we'd be wrong. He glorified. And why? Because these are all the acts of sovereign grace in which the will and action and decision of man is not 
even discussed. This is focusing on the purpose of God. And because of that purpose, we can say, if God be for us, who can be against us? And that's something you've got to figure out before God and let God burn it into your heart. We're small, we're insignificant. But is God for us? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying that you'll never not have any enemies, but he is saying there's no one in earth or hell that can successfully overthrow those for whom God is working. If God be for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on down the line, and I can't take time to expound the rest of Romans chapter 8. I got an email from a friend in Greenville there recently. It had not tell you the background of it, but she said, my Bible just falls open at Romans chapter 8 because the last series I did there was in Romans chapter 8. And uh, I therefore could not take the time to go down that chapter. But think of it. Who is he that condemneth? That again could be, the answer could be given as a question. Is it God? Is it God who has justified us? No, he's not condemning us. For there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And that all leads Paul to that wonderful explosion. And it is an explosion of confidence. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes down a whole list of things. And he ends up saying, In all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our assurance personally. But as a congregation, let's focus on the great mountain peak of God's eternal purpose. Quickly, let me go on. As verse 2 makes it clear here, get your eye on the mountain peak of God's almighty power. Whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. I want you to get this. The Lord is our helper. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our helper. Now, think of this. This is the God, says Hezekiah, who made the heavens. He made the whole earth. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he upholds it all. He made it. He upholds it. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that it all hangs together. This is an amazing thing, you know. How how up to date the Bible is. We're told, of course, you can't take the Bible as as a, a textbook for science and all the rest of it. I understand it's not a book about genetics, it's not a book about uh, microbiology and all those things, but I want to tell you anything it says is true and nothing in science, properly so-called, can ever 
find the Bible wrong. And this Bible tells me in Colossians 1 that this whole universe, every molecule of it is in motion. Just think of that. Everything is in motion. And without the hand of God, it would be constantly blowing itself apart. But it's a system. And it hangs together. That's the force of the words. In him all things consist. The force of the Greek term is all things hang together. In Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. This is the power of God. Now then. And this was the challenge to Hezekiah. That's where my help is coming from. When he says, fear not, I will help thee. We all know those lovely words of Isaiah 41. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will help thee. Do we believe that? Are we willing to stand in that? This group of people, are you willing to stand in that? Get down before God and prove God that he will help you? He has the power to do it. We may stand upon the, or look to the mountain of God's gracious promises. Hezekiah had already proved God in prayer, as every Christian has. You remember the psalmist David said, Come, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. Every Christian has a testimony. And every Christian knows the words of the psalmist again. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And the Lord saved him, or delivered him. We know that. Hezekiah had already got through to God. And God had come in Second Corinthians chapter 19. Let's turn to there for a moment, and you'll see the, the promise that the Lord is giving. Second, or Second Kings chapter 19. Let's start at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers. This is the Assyrians attacking him and promising all sorts of... Uh, depredations they were going to visit upon him. And he read it. Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwelleth between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, 
they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed for to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Now that was Hezekiah's experience. His sickness came pretty soon after that. But it came to him as a man who had proved God. God said, I have heard. Now, what happened? What happened? Remember, Hezekiah was in desperation because the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had sent his messengers and they were at the walls of Jerusalem with an army and they were threatening to bring a bigger army and they were going to level the place. And God says, I have heard you. And that army turned away. Why? Because they'd got word that their king, who was at Lachish, was in trouble. But he's in bigger trouble than ever he knew. Because without a human hand being stretched out against him, God slew 185,000 of them and sent that ungodly tyrant back to his own country like a cur with his tail between his legs, defeated and deflated. So much so that in time his own sons murdered him. I have heard you. And Hezekiah saw the miracle done. Now listen, friend. Our problem is, very often, either that we have not gone through with God in prayer to prove the mighty acts of God and get mighty answers to prayer where the God of heaven says, I have heard you and we have seen his hand at work. Or else, if we have by the blessing of God known that experience, when we face a new experience, we tend to compartmentalize and that's in the past this is in the present and we do not rest upon what God is and what God has done his promise is sure he has promised I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you he has promised I'll never fail you he has promised to give us everything we need for life and for godliness That's his promise. Now, when we're in the midst of things that perplex us and trouble us, we look to the hills of God's eternal purpose, his power, and his promise. And, of course, as the psalm points out here, his enduring presence. Again, you look at uh, Psalm 125, verse 2, the, the mountains round about Jerusalem 
they speak of the Lord residing around his people. God doesn't merely visit his people. Now, don't get me wrong. There is such a thing biblically as a divine visitation, either in blessing or in cursing. God will visit the ungodly with terrible wrath. God will visit his people many a time with great blessing and with revival. There is such a visitation. But that must never becloud the fact that God doesn't simply visit his people. He does show times of spectacularly glorious manifestations of his power. But all the time, he resides around his people. Just as those hills are round about Jerusalem, God, our Lord, is round about his people. That's the presence of the Lord. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's true. That's why very often before I preach, I will lead the people in prayer. I'm not asking the Lord to be here. He has promised he's here. So therefore, that's a given. Our Savior doesn't lie. Nor he doesn't deceive. So he is here. Now it's possible that we can be so cold at heart. We can have people in the midst even of revival and they're unmoved. We can have people sitting where the Lord is and they're not aware of it. So my prayer is the Lord will make us aware of his presence. I've been in places where revival fire has burned and the most theologically orthodox people in the whole area were adamant in opposing it and saying that God was not at work. Something wrong there, you know. Something absolutely wrong about that. We need to be aware. The Lord is here. Do not be led by unbelief to give up hope because you're facing a crisis. But look to the Lord who says, I am with you. And can I put it to you? If you have the Lord's presence, you have something more precious than a great music program. Now, I love a great music program. Just yesterday I preached at Dr. Gingery's funeral, the greatest song leader I've ever known or ever will know. Led us with the, the best congregational music and singing and glorifying God. It lifted my soul to heaven. I used to sit in that pulpit and think this must be what heaven's like. So I'm not against a, a great musical program, but I am against the entertainment that goes around in churches today I'm totally against it because it is ultimately self-destructive but I say this to you far more important than that is the presence of the Lord I remember visiting a great cathedral it was open to the public 
go in and see the architecture, see the history. You go to England, you're, you're looking at incredibly long periods of history. You look at these magnificent, magnificent structures. And there up in a little corner, you have a minister leading a bunch, a very small bunch of old women, mostly, in their liturgy. What a soul-destroying spectacle. The cathedral is cold and empty, and everything about it was cold and empty. I've been in wooden huts, temporary buildings, or in an old, remember conducting many meetings in an old ex-army tent. It was like the black hole of Calcutta. This old dark tent, and we had the strings of light through it just that I could see where the people were sitting. But I'd rather have those than any cathedral on God's earth. We had the presence of God there. The presence of God. That's his promise. And I will close with this. If there's one thing this psalm teaches us, it is we should lift our eyes to the hills of God's unwavering protection. When you read this psalm, I want you to notice the word keep or the word preserve. Right throughout the psalm, it's the same Hebrew word. It means to hedge about. It's the classic word to mean that means to guard, to keep watch over, and therefore to protect. That's the word that's used. Now watch this. Verse 3. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Verse 4. He that keepeth Israel. Verse 5. The Lord is thy keeper. Verse 7. The Lord shall preserve or keep. Verse 8. The Lord shall preserve thy going out. Now look at those very briefly. Time is gone, so I will have to be very brief here. <laughs> you, you may be regretful. That's, that's a dangerous thing to say to me, isn't it? My wife will tell you that. But anyway, verse 3, He that keepeth thee. Notice this. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. For he keeps you. In other words, stand firm. And if I could leave one thing with you in your personal life, in your congregational life, stand firm. Hebrews chapter 4 will teach you very clearly there's no wavering. There's no changing things that should remain the same. A lot of things that are of no significance, but there are things that must never, never, never be given up. Stand firm. Verse 4, 
He that keepeth Israel, we are told, shall neither slumber nor sleep. In other words, he's saying, the one who's keeping you, who gives you safety, guarantees it because he is the God of the covenant. He's the God who has entered into covenant with Christ as our covenant head, with us in Christ, and everything that Christ purchased by his obedience unto blood, the Lord says, I guarantee those blessings to you. And that includes the power, presence, and activity of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, Pentecost was purchased at Calvary. That's what we can take our stand upon. He's the God of the covenant. Verse 5. The Lord is thy keeper. And this comes back to something I was saying at the beginning. You think of the one who makes this statement. Think of the one who is our savior. The one who does the keeping. He's not a mere creature. Do you realize this? The angels are ministering spirits. And people have this wonderful vision, and uh, I understand where they're getting it from, of our guardian angels. Well, God can use angels to guard if he wishes. Don't want to go back into the book of Daniel and show you the angels doing that work there. But ultimately, God has not, he has not, given over our safety to the hand of a man or the power of an angel. He says, I reserve that in my own hand. And I will empower the angel or any other agent whom I choose to use. But ultimately, it is the Lord who is our guard. It is the Lord who is watching over us. It is the Lord who is hedging about our way. And if the way is rough, well, it's God's way. I know it's easy to say that. But this is the reality. Our steps are ordered by the Lord. Our circumstances are not just happenstances. They are divine ordinations. And he is the one who is our keeper. Think of that. He cannot fail. And then we have in verse 7, the Lord shall preserve. Who? Thee. Has he saved you? He'll keep you. He'll keep you from all evil. Now that's a big statement. It doesn't say that we're nothing... Nothing distressing. doesn't say that. But remember this. Calamity is only calamity if there's no God in it. You think of what this means. No evil can betide the children of God. What appears to be a terrible catastrophe when we get to see the finished picture, we will see it is but a thread in the mighty purpose of God where he's weaving and sewing a perfect picture that will throughout eternity be a thing of beauty and 
glory and honor to our Savior. We do not understand what God is doing, but we know the God who is doing it. And he says, I'll keep you from all evil. And this is it. I will preserve your soul. I'm going to keep your soul. Now, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 4, at the end of that chapter he's talking, and then the chapter 5, about the body. And all the things that happen to the body. The body is a dying organism. No way around it. And I listen to somebody who is supposed to be expert in these things and he tells me the number of brain cells that die every day. I have to confess... I'm wondering how long I can go on for because I can't have too many left at the rate they're dying. That That's happening every day. But I'll preserve your soul. I will preserve your soul. You'll never be in hell. I mean, you stop to think of it. If the greatest calamity, and I'm using the word in human terms, that can happen is that I die and go to glory. What's to worry about? And I'm not making light of it. I'm simply saying the Lord says, I'll preserve your soul. And of course, the beauty is, he says, I'll preserve, verse 8, you're going out and you're coming in. I preserve you throughout this world. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy 28 and 6. I bless you and you're going out and you're coming in, you're down, sitting in your uprising. God says, I'm going to bless you for my blessing is upon my people. But it goes beyond that forevermore. Forevermore. Does that not take us beyond time into eternity? Does that not take us to the glorious truth that our whole future, not only in this world, but in the age to come and throughout all eternity is guaranteed, preserved. What does Peter say? We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the promise. The Lord Jesus himself in his great high priestly prayer in John 17 and in verse 2 is this to say and this is our security here that forever as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him eternal life and that's why later he could say while I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name mark these words in verse 12 those that thou gavest me 
I have kept. And none of them is lost. That's the Savior's word. He looked at his disciples. Says the only one that was lost among them was the one who was lost from the beginning, who was the son of perdition. But of my people that thou gavest me, not one of them is lost. Now here we are, in the midst of all our troubles, our trials, our perplexities, our worries, our concerns, question marks all around us and answers seem to be conspicuous by their absence. What will we do? I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence is my help going to come? Well, as I look at those mountains around Jerusalem, the Holy Ghost tells me they speak of the personal presence and perfections of my God. I will lift my eyes to the hills of God's eternal purpose and power and promise, his presence and his protection. And he will never fail. My word to you today would be go out and put your hand by faith in the hand that rules the world. Walk with God. Do not be swayed by appearances. Do not be overcome by depression or unbelief. But fix your eyes. Lift your eyes to the hills. God's holy place. God's holy person. Get your eyes on him. Let him direct you. Let him provide for you. Mr. Gallagher, our current moderator here, was preaching in Northern Ireland once and he made a lovely statement that everybody there who heard it has never forgotten. He said, Our God is the God of surprises. What a wonderful truth. Our God is the God of surprises. He can do far more exceeding abundantly than we have ever seen or that we can ever think. So let us prove God. And through the days of perplexity, let him shed forth his light. And then all that's required of us is walk in the light. That's all. And you'll never walk alone. And you'll never walk wrong when you walk in the light of the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer. Let us all pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We pray that thou wilt bless this word to every heart. We pray that thou wilt start in the pulpit and go through the congregation and apply the word of God as thou dost see each individual needs. We commit 
the minister and his wife to thee in this time of transition. Thou dost know, O Lord, the heaviness of their heart that is natural to them. But we pray that thou wilt support them and uphold them and guide them. And Lord, we pray that thou wilt bless them and make them a blessing. We pray for the folk that are left here. We pray that thou wilt provide the ministry they need. Give them a new vision. And grant, O Lord, that they will yet prove God in a greater way than ever before. We ask thee, Lord, that thou wilt lift us beyond our troubles, our trials, our perplexities, our concerns, and fill our vision with the greatness of our God and of our Christ. And God grant that even now we will leave this place with a blithesome step, rejoicing in the greatness and goodness and grace of our triune Lord and Saviour. Hear our prayer, O God, our Father, we beseech of thee. Part us with thy blessing and keep us in thy fear. Be the abiding portion of all thy blood-bought church and bless this congregation particularly, both now and evermore. And to thee, O Lord, we shall be careful to give the praise and the honor and all the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.